137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Welcome back, everybody, to Pixelated Paranormal, episode number 33. And tonight, we're all kind of on the same page uh, for once, and I think we're just going to hit one main topic, and uh, that's going to be missing people, I think, will be the umbrella for tonight. Yeah, hot off the press as we all just finished watching the Missing 411 documentary, and I think we're going to talk about that, and that's just going to snowball into a, a bunch of stuff, I think. Yeah, how's everybody been? <laughs> I've been all right. I just got uh, done with a little mini staycation, so I took a couple of days off of work um, and uh, went to go see a buddy in Topeka for uh, a day. And then Jeffrey and I just finally watched Alien Covenant uh, today at the Palace West. So, oh, sweet, yeah, nice, 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 nice. Rob, how you been, man? I've been all right, I guess, all things considered. Which I don't know what you've been considering, but yeah, whatever. I will consider all of them. Sweet. I just got through pulling close to like 75 oak tree saplings out of my backyard that the uh, squirrels had planted for me. Right on. Aw, they wanted you to have shade. <laughs> all that global warming. Squirrels are the real no heroes. Kidding. But the problem is, like, we had this huge oak tree in the backyard, and the people that had the place before us had kind of set up some railroad ties and kind of had like this big eight foot square area sectioned off where they probably planted flowers or did some uh, landscaping, but I've neglected it. And then over the last three years, these squirrels have just been eating all the acorns and everything and dropping the shells down. And the other day I checked out my window and I was like, Holy shit, there's like a small forest growing around this tree. <laughs> so I finally got out there and became a, uh, an amateur arborist and ripped all those puppies out of the ground. So if you or anybody you know wants to buy a sapling, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just go ahead and uh, let's get after it and jump into some news. Preston, why don't you get us started? So for my uh, first article, I'm going to talk about the famous cocktail ingredient, which is a or a mummified human toe. Have you guys heard about that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did, yeah. So <laughs> recently... That was stolen. So the uh, the theft of a famed cocktail ingredient, a mummified human toe, has been uh, has spurred the North Canadian Territory of Yukon to launch a tongue in cheek campaign for an uh, insurance toe in case the digit gets stolen again. In Yukon's Dawson City, drinking a cocktail with a pickled toe is a time-honored tradition that more than 100,000 visitors have undertaken. The toe was stolen from a local hotel on June 18th, sparking national headlines. It came back by mail four days later, along with an apology letter, according to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The Travel Yukon Government Tourism Organization asked on Twitter for pictures of toes in the Toe Nation contest, which will grant the winner a free trip to the remote, sparsely populated territory. Our toe was returned, but we can always use backups, Travel Yukon tweeted. Donate your toes for a hashtag Yukon trip. We will toe, uh, will your toe make the cut, snip, snip. According to Dawson City, the story behind the cocktail is that a local man created the drink after finding a jar with an amputated frostbitten toe of a rum runner from the 1920s. Yep. Be sure to remember that the most important rule, 
You can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but your lips gotta touch the toe, which is according to the city's website. (laughs) Authorities have said the male suspect in the theft case called the police after officers identified him. The man allegedly left his identification at the hotel after downing the cocktail. And according to the Yukon News, the toe came back with an apology letter signed, A Drunken Fool. At this time, <laughs> or at the time that the package was opened, the toe was believed to be in good condition, so no charges are expected to be filed in this matter. Nice. Yeah, it's got kind of a happy ending. I've, got I've gotten schnockered before and maybe walked off with a couple things and then got really, you know, felt um, guilty later and brought it um, back. A mummified toe? You've got schnockered and walked away with a pickled toe? No, it was more like pottery hanging on the side of a restaurant that I had margaritas at one time. And would you drink a pickle toe? I would I would do the shot. I read about this last year and thought that that'd be kind of an interesting thing to do. I'd like to try it out. You people are weird. I don't see what the Bemi mean. It's like, you know, it's like one of those one-in-a-lifetime, you know, experiences. Like, dude, I drank a, a cocktail with a mummified toe in it. Well, I mean, by then, things probably have been, you know, disinfected by all the alcohol, all the vodka yeah. shots people are taking with it. I'm sure it's, you might get a fleck or two that kind of, you know, come off the end of the, the, end of the toe and Ugh. make their way into your mouth, but it should be fine. No uh, toenail corn? Ooh, maybe. Oh, boy. Yeah. Some <laughs> specks of bunions. <laughs> well, <Nom, nom>, <laughs> So what, what else you got after your, your pickled toe drinks? So we're going to jump into some science news here. So a groundbreaking study from Columbia University's Medical Center could potentially bring relief to millions of people who suffer from PTSD. The result of the study, which were published Thursday in the academic journal Current Biology, showed how research, researchers were able to erase certain memories housed on the same neurons as other memories without affecting them. But nope, it wasn't in humans. This study was done in snails. According to the Futurism, studies like this could eventually lead to medication that is able to affect people's brain's chemistry and stop them from associating certain things with traumatic events. The hope is to one day eliminate what researchers call non-associated fears, fears that are unrelated to actual incidents but have become intertwined into people's memories. The researchers say they want to leave associated long-term memories intact so that people can learn from their mistakes and maintain a working memory without the pain and suffering that goes along with it. However, there are ethical implications of the study as Science uh, Science Alert points out, especially because scientists could also reverse the process and implants, implant false memories and associations along with it. So what do you guys think? I, I don't... I just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, they started out this this research with snails because the the brain patterns are easy to map out, and it's a very simple system. But they were able to show that they could affect uh, the chemistry of the neurons and take away certain memories of the snails. So, like you know, if a snail would walk and get shocked or whatever, they would go along the same path, and they could remove the the trauma from that shock or whatever it was. So the the studies on this are nowhere near close uh, to being put together for humans, but they they say they're on the right path. I think what interested me the most was the fact that if we could take this study and make a working drug that could alter our memories, um, the, you know what would happen if it got into the wrong hands or if the government misused this. Well, we've all seen Total Recall. Yeah. 
Quaid. Quaid. Get your ass to Mars. Yeah, I. It's interesting to me that we're working on that because I think it has some benefits. You know, if you've got PTSD and you can't leave your house because you hear, you know, a car backfire or a mailbox slam shut without thinking you're back in the war. I mean, it could help. It has some serious, you know, benefits to it. But at the same time, if we can make you forget a memory, can we implant a false memory as well? I mean, there's already different drugs. Hell, the I forget the kid's name, but the one of the kids that came forward and said that Michael Jackson had been molesting him, it's just come across in the news that his dad uh, potentially could have been drugging him because the dad made the claims first that Michael Jackson abused his son. And then later the kid came forward and said, yeah, I've got all these memories of this stuff happening. And there's the potential that maybe his dad had drugged him and planted the memories in his, you know, in his psyche. And the, that's what happens. So. Or on the flip side, let's say like somebody like, uh, you know, like a child molester or murderer or whatever the case may be, gets a hold of this drug and then their victims themselves, they can actually, you know, uh, drug their victims and then implant false memories so that they never remember the crime at all. So even though the science behind it's good, I mean, there's all these negative implications that can happen from it. Yeah, I think we're just getting a little bit too big for our britches when it comes to some of this technology stuff, but I guess we'll find out. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. I just, shit kind of terrifies me, man. What uh, what if I need to forget? I was going to say, speaking of the dangers of technology. Coming at you from the 37th parallel from the basement of a mad scientist, it's more fantastical tales of robots. robots. So this this uh, was reported, and it doesn't really have anything to do. It has something, everything to do with robots, but doesn't actually deal with a robot specifically. The director of the MIT Center for Digital Business explains how robots will enhance our future economy. There will not be taking our jobs, but instead helping to create new ones. So this is his thought process. On he's like he doesn't understand why people are worried about robots taking our jobs because. New jobs are going to be created for uh, those people by dealing with the robots, which I think is total bullshit. Right. But he basically said that he doesn't see – he says for every job that a robot takes, there's going to be other jobs that that will facilitate that robot. And not all robots will do all the jobs uh, that are out there, and he doesn't really believe that's going to be the issue. Um, he and he also follows suit from uh, the G, one of the uh, presidents of GE who came out and said the same thing, basically that robots are not going to take all the jobs, and it's it, the, the thing that they are. It is total BS. It's really hard to say. I mean, we're in the second industrial revolution. We're all terrified of having our jobs taken. Uh, just this week, two different uh, two different cities or states. I'm sorry. Uh, are now going to allow robot deliveries, Florida, and uh, I believe it was Wisconsin or Minnesota, I don't remember, are both now allowing robots to deliver goods by sidewalk. So you'll have little R2-D2s delivering Amazon packages on the street, or mail, or anything else. That's that's eliminating a lot of jobs. Uh, I mean, You're exactly right. UPS and other, you know, courier services, sure. Yeah. I mean, and those are, again, more middle-class, well-paying jobs that have a line of people trying to get into those jobs. Right. So uh, to say that it does that there's going to be jobs to replace 
the jobs we're losing. The fact is, there always used to be the saying that we always need ditch diggers. And that meant that no matter how dumb you were, you would be able to get a job because we always needed somebody to dig ditches. But even that's yeah. becoming automated. And just because new jobs can be created with the robots doesn't mean that we have qualified people to do this. If it has to do with engineering or repair of robots, I've, I clean floors. That's another job that will probably be taken over by robots uh, for right now. You know, that's what I do. And if it was to be replaced, I mean, I don't know anything about engineering. I don't know how easy it would be for me to do maintenance on these robots. And if uh, we, we employ like almost 50 people in our hospital, probably more than 50 for cleaning our hospital, mm-hmm. if that's all replaced by two or three robots that could do this 24 hours a day, well, you're only going to need one person to fix these robots. So there's 49 jobs eliminated, even if one person out of that group could do this job. Right. So it's, it's a, it is a terrifying time to be – the second industrial revolution is fascinating and at the same time very terrifying because uh, what a lot of people don't understand is I live in the Midwest. You guys live in the Midwest. Um. And these are places that are not getting the job training and stuff. People always think of, you know, the big cities are where all the money rolls in at. And if if you're taking all the jobs away from the from the hole in the center of the country, it's not helping us at all. Right. <laughs> and it, it's it's very scary to think about. I mean, I try not to think about it, but eventually it's going to come down to we're going to have to think about it. And also, uh, I have a friend that's talked about this before as well. Is when you once you start training other people to do those jobs or to do to to get a continued education and everything else you also cause those jobs that they're being trained at to drop in wages because you've got all these people fighting over one of these jobs you've got the argument of well you know guys we're going to be able to make this stuff more efficiently i can make 10 ford fiestas in the time it took you know the old people to make two so now I can cut the cost down. Well, no, you're not going to cut the cost down. You're just going to keep cranking them out for the same price. The cost- and that's what basically G- that's what the guy at GE was saying. He's basically said, "Oh, well, now now wages are going to go up because you know we're going to be able to make t- instead of making one car, we're going to be able to make ten in that time period. And so with less workers, we're going to be able to pay more. Well, that still doesn't help because these other nine people that were working before still need a job." Well, yeah, and where are the new jobs going to come from? If you only have four positions in your factory and you just replace three of them with robots, you're not going to make three new ones. That's counterproductive. You're trying to be more efficient, not just open up new new uh, sections in your in your factory to work. Yeah, I don't know. It just it seems like a big snowball to where you're going to start putting so many people out of jobs. That we're not going to have the money to then turn around and buy the goods anyway, so you're kind of just going to screw yourself. So if we can just hold out for about 15 more years... <laughs> For the dust to settle, then maybe they'll start up a new wave of, hey, guys, we're going to open up factories and have human workers. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> so zany. <laughs> Robot workers are, are too perfect. We need chaos in our yeah. in our world. So. Well, and, and what about the revolt? You can walk into any supermarket that has self-checkout lanes and find four or five curmudget people saying, I'm not going to go through there. That's taking away jobs. <laughs> And then they're going to complain, well, there's there's only four lanes open of 40 lanes in this place. What the hell's going on? <laughs> so, I mean, it's it slowly. I got annoyed because I went in at midnight, and for some reason, they had shut down the automated, uh, <laughs> not the uh, the uh, check, check yourself lanes. Yeah. And I was so perturbed. I ended up getting, I waited and waited in line. I said, fuck this. I don't need this shit. And I walked out. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I'm guilty of it, too, though. Like, I've gone into places before. 
with a cart full of stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to stand here and give this place my money because they want me to wait in line for 40 people to go through a self-checkout. Meanwhile, you have two of your 20 lanes open with people who are so just frazzled out of their minds they can't even hold a decent conversation with you and they're checking you out so i've pushed the basket off to the side and said forget this noise and i've walked right out the door yeah Yeah. fuck robots fuck robots fuck robots (laughs) oh that's that's wonderful let me check my notes here because i completely forgot what we were gonna hit on next (laughs) (laughs) missing 411 the documentary okay hold on we gotta we gotta throw a segue in there somehow we gotta get and just think, with all these robots taking jobs, when somebody goes missing, it's going to take us that much longer to realize that they're not showing up for work. <laughs> Rob for the win. <laughs> Rob throws his hands up in triumph. I made a segue. Beow, beow, beow. <laughs> hey, well, if I made a segue, I'd probably get a job making segues. <laughs> but, you know. That's true. <laughs> There's my engineering degree. Uh, sir, can I? Can you explain to me why you're here today? Uh, yes, I would like to make segues. Really, I'm very good at it. Uh, uh, can you show us some of your work? Yes, obviously. Here, listen to this. I, I don't get it. You're talking on a podcast. Did you not see that segue? Sir, we make motorized vehicles here that people ride. This is not the kind of segue we need, we need making. Uh, good stuff. Yeah. So, hey. That's a great segue. We'll go ahead and just jump into our main topic, and that's going to be missing people. And the forerunning expert on that currently would be David Politis and his Missing 411 series. And we recently each had the opportunity to sit down and watch Missing 411, the documentary. And we all... Not together. Yeah, that's true. That would have been nice, wouldn't it? So the documentary is kind of, uh, I guess you'd say, split up into three, three parts. Is that right? Three main stories? Uh, three main stories, but then there's like, uh, they touched on one kid that went missing in Colorado and they didn't really, or Montana, they didn't talk about him all that much. Uh, we all three kind of have differing opinions on this, I think, to a degree. So who wants to start? What do we think about it? I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun, but I'll let you guys go first and then I'll try to. Well, first of all, we need to explain what missing 411 is, is that there, it started out as a bunch of people missing from. Uh, national parks, parks and it's yeah. kind of it's kind of gotten further away from that as it's gone on but originally it was children uh usually some type of uh autism autism spectrum mm-hmm. or some kind of learning disability or something would go missing also elderly people tend to go missing um but and when they when i say they would go missing i mean you'd literally they'd round the corner and you'd get around the corner Ten seconds later, and they're gone, nowhere to be seen. Right, just it's it's gone. classic cases of like you know a grandma watching a kid um, in a cabin, and she's swinging him on the swing set. She turns around to go inside to get you know a refill on her coffee. She's back in two and a half minutes. The kid's gone and never seen again. In most cases, they're just like they're snatched right. out of thin air and just they disappear. Right. And uh, you know, one thing that we just you know we brought up about how. You know, a large amount of the missing 411 with kids, um, you know, they deal with, you know, some type of uh, like handicap, like maybe the, you know, the child would be deaf or the child would be blind mm-hmm. or they would have a speech. Impediment or sometimes or, they were even um, you know, mentally disabled. Sometimes they had Down syndrome or, or mentally disabled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, you, you know, that being said, I, I do remember reading in one of the missing 401 books that they talked about how that that same percentage of, you know, the kids who were autistic or the child who couldn't communicate properly what happened to him, those were the ones that always came back. Oh, so yeah. the ones that they did find alive 
were the ones that had that you know that that handicap or something wrong with them because they couldn't accurately tell you what went what went wrong what had happened whereas if you had somebody like little dior in the in this you know this documentary you know there's a good chance that they'll never find this kid because he was able you know he was you know well well minded he was just a typical 2 year old little boy mm-hmm. so had he came back 3 or 4 years old there's a good chance that he could accurately describe what happened. So we're, you know, there's a good chance we're never going to find him because he doesn't fall within that script of, you know, of the, you know, autistic, you know, deaf, dumb, blind, whatever it is where uh, you see the ones that do come right. Back. So I'm in the middle between you and Rob, like parts of it I thought were really good. And then the rest of it I thought could have been better. Um, I, I was, kind of overall disappointed in the way that they presented the information. So I thought that, uh, you know, for somebody like us, like the three of us who are, uh, you know, immersed in this, this topic, it was kind of a letdown overall, but then, you know, going back, I, I can kind of look and see how they, you know, how they directed it and why they did sort of some of the things that they did for trying to pull people into this topic, you know, who have never heard it before. Um, so it's kind of like a soft, I think of it as a soft introduction into missing four. Right. So. Well, here's, here's what my problem with it is the subject itself. Every one of us has been pulled into this story from the very first time we heard mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't take much to pull you into the story because it's, it's a mystery and it's a mystery we don't have answers to. And it's also a scary mystery for things we don't have answer to. This documentary, I feel like did not touch any of that. Yeah. I felt it focused too much on one story in particular that I'm not even convinced is part of the 411 mystery itself. It seems almost like I don't I don't know. I mean, you have a kid that got missing at a campground with a mom that sometimes seemed like she was involved and other times not. Out camping with a guy that got arrested for pedophilia that was later rescinded, I believe. Mm-hmm. And a and a grandfather with uh, Alzheimer's, or or maybe it was the starting signs of dementia, where he wasn't paying attention, right? And that's what they focused on the most, and it didn't seem to follow a lot of the the rules that uh, Missing Four One One the books usually entail. And at the same time, uh, they didn't even go into those rules that we kind of established with things that are all peculiar and coincidental with these uh, these mis- these things that are missing. The biggest problem, like you said before, I don't think the documentary is meant for the three of us. Because like you all said, we're well immersed in this. I think that we we shouldn't deter anybody from watching it. Because if you don't really know a lot about the uh, phenomenon, it's worth a watch. Um, it's not meant – I don't want to sound like an, a pretentious bastard. It's not meant for uh, – God, sounds dumb – an expert in this field. You know, We know a lot about it. It's meant a lot more for people who have no idea and who aren't going to pick up a book. Because the books can be kind of taxing. I've got two of them. And they're great reads, but you got to filter through a lot of the same, like, okay, a guy went missing. He went to the forest. He got lost. He's never found again. And there's a lot of instances of that just over and over and over. But there's some really good stuff in there, too. I think for every three mundane stories, there's some that just make you really pick your brain. Right. I, I really hope that what they do is they come out with a sequel. I hope he had enough people with interest in this, that they're going to come back and actually give us a chance to see another one and get into it. Cause you're right, Rob, like they never touched on anything. And a lot of, if, if you guys haven't listened to us before talk about this, a lot of times, uh, beyond kids and elderly, basically people who are potentially easy to pick off. There's a lot of other weird stuff too. Like, 
articles of clothing will be missing or they'll never find the person, but they'll find like their shoes, um, you know, tied by the side of like a body of water. And that's the other big thing, right? A lot of these cases happen by bodies of water, or if the bodies are actually found deceased, uh, they're in bodies of water. And that's bizarre too. And that's one thing I wish he would have talked about. And they are found. And also the big point to bring up for that, a lot of times they're, they're not drowned either when they're found in the bodies right. of water. Yeah, there's there's no sign of predation. There's mm. no sign of violence. So we find this, you know, this perfectly deceased body, and there's no like needle marks. There's there you're left with the only conclusion is they they died due to exposure. So they were exposed too long to the elements. But then in all those cases, when you actually go in and do the research, you find that they weren't missing. Like, you know, you can tell how long a body was exposed for. Right. So the, 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 the actual state of decomposition, like they're not missing long enough for them to have that, that, that state. Right. So then that really dying of the elements doesn't match up either. We find clothing, but they're perfectly folded. So it's like methodically folded. So you have like, you know, your, your, your. Uh, your pants, your underwear, your shirt, and then socks, and then shoes, and it's like somebody has taken the time to remove these article of clothing, you know, stack them up something like a serial killer or something odd would, mm-hmm. and then place them next to the body that's found with no signs of murder, no signs of predation. What else is interesting about the clothing and the way they find people? I'm learning now that as I'm reading these books, one of the weirdest uh, signs, or I should say, like uh, patterns, a lot of males are discovered with their flies down. I think an easy explanation, all jokes aside, if if you're out and you're tracing through the woods or the forest and you've had one too many beers and you're just drunk as shit, like you're going to unzip your pants, take a piss, and just pass out and fall down. That could be a simple explanation. Not for everybody because there's right. tons. You know, the book I've got right now has 500 pages, so not all 500 of those cases got pissed drunk fell over and knocked themselves out while they're taking a leak so i mean if you haven't if you have an interest in this or if you don't pick it up and watch it with the with the peak of all these different documentaries i think this one is pretty pertinent to watch uh, to check out it's worth it's worth a watch to me it didn't really get our goose as much because i think we are hoping for a lot more dastardly stuff and you know we've already been wowed by it so it's not really going to wow us as much as the next person so yeah go out and check that out um you can you can get it on video on demand right now you can probably get it on iTunes to watch or to buy. You can order a copy, you, I think, You can yourself. buy it for $12 on Amazon Prime, or you can rent it for 6 Nice, okay. I was really hoping to get Steven to pick it up to watch so he could be on the show with us tonight, because I wanted someone who isn't as involved in it to watch it and see what their opinion is of it were. Uh, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, well... We'll get Steve-O on here. This won't be the last time we talk about this for sure. I'm just barely scraping the surface of this book. I'm sure there's more weird shit that I'm not aware of, so we'll do it again. But So, Preston, why don't you go ahead and jump in because we've got plenty of missing people stories. Some of them are just kind of simple, and some of them are pretty detailed and right. pretty damn creepy. So, And uh, so Politis, um, with his books, he's actually kind of broken it down into categories now. So we have like Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence, which has to to deal uh, with a a lot of uh, cases that are like in town around bars where people go missing. Um, And so then the next book in the series, one that he did was uh, Missing 411, um, you know, like hunting or hunters or whatever. And it has to deal... Uh, with a uh, like a large amount of cases where hunters have gone missing, so well, you know, one could say that uh, the regular four one one with with children 
It's not out of the the realm of possibilities because a child could easily get lost in the woods because they're not they're not experts. But we actually have outdoorsmen where this is kind of you know their their second life so to speak, and then they go missing. We we just don't we don't hear a lot about it, but there's a lot of, of cases, and one of them that's in the book actually deals with the founder of Converse, uh, which are a really kick-ass pair of shoes. I own like four or five because I love myself some All Stars, and I think Sean doesn't like them as much, but that's okay. or at all. But that's just me or at all. Okay, so. You know, we have to go back to 1917 because that's kind of the year that this all started with the Converse Rubber Company um, producing the first basketball shoe in the world, and that was the All-Star. And the reason why this is important because that at that time kind of propelled the, the name Mitchell Kaufman into the limelight, so to speak. He was a well-known name because of how popular the shoe was. And it was he was associated as being the president of the Converse Rubber Company. So now you have somebody who you know is really famous. We don't really hear about these missing four one one cases who with somebody who's who's famous, right? These are usually just kind of um, people that we we really don't know. And uh, but this one really caught my eye because of how it's associated with somebody who was famous. And after we go to 1917, let's jump into the time machine and go to 1929. Okay, so Converse files for bankruptcy. This is the Depression era. And at this time, Kaufman was 37. Um, he'd been hunting you know, numerous times in his life. He's a well-seasoned hunter. He's uh, you know, an older individual now, 37. And so, so you know, being even now, I, I would think, uh, you know, Sean and I, Sean, you're like, what, 31, 32? Yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. And I'm thirty. I'll be thirty-three. Rob, how old are you? Forty. I'm forty. There you go. Fuck you, Preston. So I mean, we're all kind of in this age, I think, in this range of ages where I mean, anything that we do, hobby-wise, or like you know, let's say hunting, I would think that if all of us were hunters, being the ages that we are, we would be seasoned in in that that sport or hobby so to speak like you know we should be able to not get lost and you know know what we're doing out in the woods and things like that um so 37 years old he's got he's a lover of the outdoors um our country is going through the depression um people aren't buying shoes so what do you do you're a wealthy individual file for bankruptcy get out of that shit don't worry about it and that's what he does he files for bankruptcy decides that he's going to take a mancation with the bros spend some time out in the woods hunting and drinking playing cards you know man stuff and uh, so this uh, this mancation takes place november 4th 1930 and uh, he got a group of friends so four friends and him uh, went deer hunting in crocker pond maine now, they decided that uh, since they weren't familiar with the area, they were going to hire some local trackers or some local guides to help them hunt. And they hired Levi Kennedy and Neil Rancourt. Um, these guys were like local trackers, local huntsmen, and uh, they would set up, you know, deer deer trails, you know, the little stands up in the trees or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they had all this prepared for them ahead of time. Tree stands, we call them. What did I say? I don't know. Something idiotic. Stands in the tree. Yeah. I said tree stands. Why don't fuck off? You didn't say anyways. Tree stands at all. They set up those little boxes that you you sit in to watch the deer and the tree. A okay? deer blind. The deer. Anyway, it's a different thing. That 
So the the first day, um, they were like, fuck it. Let's drink. Let's play cards. Let's have a good time. They really just kind of decided that they weren't going to go hunting at all. But the two guys were like, listen, this is what we got paid for. You guys paid us uh, to, to bring you out here and show you the ropes and, you know, to get you some deer. So let's let's put the poker down. Let's stop drinking. Let's get out there. And everybody's like, fuck it. We're just going to drink. We're going to play poker. So after, you know, a day or two of them pushing guys, come on, let's get out there. Let's go hunting. Neil and Mitchell decide that they're going to go. And, you know, the details become a little bit fuzzy um, because this case is so old. So nobody knows exactly, you know, when the two of them left, uh, you know, what the plans were for the day. Um, You know, you can't find really any details on what Neil said happened. So all we know is that the two of them left. They decided to go hunting. Um, At the end of the day, Neil returns by himself. And he expected that uh, Mitchell would be back. They got separated, but we don't know why. And at that point, they were like, shit, we, we, needed, we need to do something. This guy's obviously missing because if you two got separated, you're here and he's not, something bad happened. So the next day, out of nowhere, this winter storm hits. Just a real bad winter storm. It wasn't in the forecast. And it's kind of one of those things that sticks out in the story because that's what everybody brings up. Like, out of nowhere, it's so weird. This giant storm hits, and it kind of screws us for a day. Um, And then, you know, second day or after the storm, so now we're on the third day, Mitchell still hasn't showed up. But his boots that he was wearing were rubber Converse hunting boots, and that made him really easy to track. So when they started finding tracks in the snow or tracks on the ground – they were able to tell which ones were his and which ones were not. But then all of a sudden those tracks go cold. Um, they followed them for a couple miles outside of where the cabin was. And then they had no idea where the man went. The, the trail just went cold. Huh. Um, now we, we talked about how he was a seasoned hunter. Um, he had his rifle with him. He had a, he had a box of matches. He had his compass. So this knowledgeable outdoors man, he should be okay. So they weren't too worried at this point because they're like, you know, if he can light fires, he knows which way is north, east, south. You know, he can find his way back. We're okay. Um, So they decided the best thing to do was around the area um, in the search pattern. They would send groups out to build brush fires. And each day they would light a brush fire um, or light that brush on fire as kind of a, a homing beacon to say, hey, buddy, this way. Um, for a couple days, every hour on the hour, they were fire a gunshot. So in case that, uh, you know, he couldn't see the fires, he would know which direction to walk because he, you know, he could hear that, that gunfire. So he knows, Hey, I need to go this way. So they, they do all that days go by nothing. Um, and, uh, it, it turned out that because of his name and who he was, that no expense was was spared. This actually ended up being the biggest manhunt in the history of Maine um, because they wanted to find what happened. It got so big that investigators crisscrossed trails. Uh, the Canadian border was dropped at one point so they could expand this, uh, the search into uh, Canada. Wow. And um, after, you know, months go by, they decided, okay, let's bring back everybody from the party. Let's bring back these two guides. Let's, let's really drill them. Let's nail them. Let's, you know, figure out what's going on. But every time they would investigate him in different rooms, you know, the, the stories always came back the same. So after numerous interviews, they decided foul play never happened. You know, this has nothing to do with foul play. Like this guy literally got lost. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the family at this point, uh, the, they hired Albert Wessler, which was actually Kaufman's brother-in-law and best friend. They said, you know, you have the, the rest of her resources. We know how much he means to you. Find him. Do something. And so Wessler spent a large time studying the grids, the search grids on maps. And he realized that after a couple of days of studying these maps – that there was one area that had been overlooked. And the reason why it was overlooked, it was because of how high up the elevation was, how inaccessible it was. And that if you were conducting a search and you were to look at this map as a tracker, you would tell yourself an experienced huntsman would never go in this area. So they decided what's the point of looking in here because we need to put our resources somewhere else. And uh, May 19th, 1931, six months uh, later, on the outside edge of the search grid, nine miles away from the cabin, Kaufman's body was found on top of a brush pile, fully clothed with no rifle, no signs of predation or violence, and no clue as to how he had died. And nothing has been written about his death, um, and the case was just closed. Wow. So I want to put this in, yeah, I want to put this into perspective because uh, if we look at the amount of resources that were put in, okay, four guides went out looking for him within that six month, eight month period. 12 game wardens, three search planes, seven dog teams, and 800 searchers could not find one man nine miles away from his campsite. And no clues pointed to how he actually died. Why was he on top of the brush pile instead of using it for a shelter? If you're an experienced hunter and you're next to a brush pile, you would think you would clear part of it out so that you can make a shelter from the storm, the rain, the wind, whatever. That didn't happen. Um, he was found fully clothed. His rifle was never found during that whole entire time. They could not find the compass, and they could not find the book of matches. And out of those seven teams of dog search trackers, the dogs never once picked up a scent, and his tracks never led to his final location. So he was actually moving away from the cabin in the opposite direction where his body was found, and the tracks just stopped. And then it's like they did a reversal nine miles the other direction. Oh, weird. Um, and to this day, those who actually look at the details of this case, many questions still remain unanswered. And I actually had a hard time. If So if you don't actually don't go pick up the 4-1 Hunter book, you're actually going to find a hard time trying to find this information. Because if you just Google search, you know, Converse founder died, all it does is give you a date. It just says, yep, he died, May 19-whatever. Yeah, I, I did that while you were telling that story, and I just get everything but what I want. <laughs> Okay, so I've got I've got missing four one one North America and beyond right now. What's his last name? Spell his last name for me. It's uh, Mitchell Kaufman with a K. Uh, should be C O F F M A N. And see, that story's not in here at all. So he probably saved it. That's pretty bizarre, man. And it's interesting that that's not a history that's really given out publicly. It's pretty well just hidden. And it, it, you know, and the amount of resources that was put into it, like, you know, they searched this area heavily. So how, you know, how can that body, you know, you the tracks just stopped and then the body was like, it was just placed. That's what they said in the reports that the body was just placed. On yeah. Top of the and they, they couldn't tell you how he died. So they're just like, nope, he's dead. And the family just left that alone after them. And what year did this take place in? Because it's been. 1930. So 1939. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, there's no telling how they... I mean, this has probably happened a lot in that time period, too, where people would disappear and and they didn't do autopsies because they just figured, hey, we don't know what could have done it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'm sorry. May 19th, 1931. So, it happened in the early 30s. Right on. There's a lot of cases from, like, the early 1900s in these books where it's just like, there's no real details other than someone did this, 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 and this, and they disappeared. 
but I mean, it's, it's, I, I feel silly in a way saying it's interesting that this has been happening for that long because people get lost in the woods all the time. But at the same time, like the circumstances are still what's just so damn bizarre about it. So no, is that your only story about the woods? No, I mean, um, there was another one, and I and I, I couldn't track down the details of the of the case. But you know, as far as like just kind of telling it from memory, um, this took place in Colorado, and uh, basically kind of a, a small small town um, next to one, one of the the mountain, the, you know, the the parks mm-hmm. there. Um, this uh, uh, Sunday school teacher. Um, you know, he's, he was a, uh, firefighter on the side. So he, you know, during the week he'd be a firefighter. And then, you know, on Sundays he would teach Sunday school. He was kind of like the pillar of the community. Right. Um, everybody knew this guy. Um, everybody looked up to him. Um, he was just a stand up dude all the way around. And, uh, you know, every year during deer season. So right around November when deer season would start, he would always go, you know, set up the tree stands, get ready for the hunt. And, uh, he told his wife one Saturday uh, morning, like, honey, I'm going out. I'm getting ready to set up the, the tree stands. I'll be back Monday morning. And, you know, this is typical. This is what he does every November. So she's like, okay, see you later. Um, Monday rolls around, no sign of, you know, right. let's call him Carl. And, uh, so she at first doesn't get freaked out. Um, you know, cause this, maybe he just got sidetracked. He didn't take his cell phone or anything with him. And, uh, so, uh, Wednesday rolls around and he's still no sign, no call, no nothing. So she calls it in. Um, she said, this is usually where he goes. This is where he puts his, his tree stands. Um, this is the area that I would look. Searchers went out. They found no tracks, no sign of his body. Um, you know, they, they saw that somebody had been there setting something up, but uh, they found no signs of, you know, which way he would have gone. Um, so then you do the standard, okay, this is probably the last spot that he was at. We're going to do a 10-mile uh, radius around this, this area because, you know, a man, you know, mid thirty this weight you know if he's traveling on foot this is the amount of range that he can cover per day Mm -hmm. they do all this never found him and then you know let's say i think it was like a year later almost a year and a half later somebody was in that area and you have a tree one of those you know those giant pine trees those fir trees that are like 50 60 feet up in the air Almost at the top of it, there he is dangling, but naked, um, just dangling at the top of the tree. Whoa. And so they pull him down. Um, they do an autopsy, and then they don't ever tell the wife anything. So she just starts um, trying to pull some strings. You know, I need answers. I need answers. And so finally she gets a letter. I think the FBI had investigated on it, and she gets a letter back from the FBI saying that he died from a cocaine overdose. <laughs> um and that was it, right? So you have this guy who's a. I'm not saying that just because he was the pillar of the community that he, you know, wouldn't be a druggie or anything like that. I mean, we don't know. Some people can hide things really well, mm-hmm. but you get the sense of the people who knew him that th- this wasn't this guy. Like his wife was married to him for 21 years, and when you're with somebody that long, you know, you, you don't, you can't hide things like that. Like you know, secretly you might not tell your friends, yeah, my, you know, my husband's a drug addict or you know he's an alcoholic, but that's something when you're with somebody from that long that you 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 can't hide those things. Right. And she was just like, that's not my husband. He did not die from a drug overdose. And if you have a man who weighs 245 pounds, how the fuck? 
fuck do you carry his body um, almost 50, 60 feet up? I can't carry a body. I can't carry your ass 50, 60 feet up in the air, and you don't weigh 245 pounds. Like, who, who, how big was this person to get that man up that tree? And, you know, what, how could they not find any signs of him whatsoever? And so the fact that it's just like he went missing, there's no signs, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, boom, his body just reappears. And then the government was just like, it's hush hush. Let's not let's not talk about it. And then, just how many bodies of adult men have you tried to carry up in a tree exactly, Preston? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't carry a body that weighs that much up a tree. <laughs> I know what it's, I know what it's like pushing your ass over a muddy log. Okay, so I'm imagining pushing you up a that time in Tough Mudder when I pushed you up that six foot muddy oh, log. That's true. How much of a pain in the ass that was. Imagine a 50, 60 foot tree. Like, there is you know, none of the branches look like they had been broken, like somebody had climbed yeah. up. Like, he basically was just kind of, bloop, yeah. bloop, you know, just plucked there, and that, that was so it. So, is there the potential so. that he just got completely just high off of his gourd on coke? I want to climb this tree. I mean, I've, yeah. I've been inebriated before on clothes? alcohol. Like they, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't find any sign of his clothes whatsoever. Well, like, he was oh, high on cocaine. It's true. Maybe he discussed. may have been optional. I mean, I know that when Christian Bell got high on cocaine, he, you know, chased a mythical lady with a chainsaw down the street right. in American Psycho. So Maybe he just got completely ripped on, on booger sugar and just thought, screw this. I'm getting buck ass naked yeah. and I'm climbing this fucking tree. Don't tell me what I can't do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and all jokes aside, this is the weird shit that keeps happening with these cases. Like, it starts off pretty normal. Somebody leaves, I'll be back tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And then they're just they're gone. And then if the body is found, uh, more than likely there's some just weird scenario that went on. Whether like they found the body of the guy and he's like hunched over on a on a rock, but his pants are on backwards and his shoes are on the wrong feet. Just weird shit. So weird. But well, let's just keep on talking about some more missing uh, persons cases with missing four one one. And I found a couple really interesting stories from Alaska that I thought were kind of uh, kind of cool because I don't think about Alaska very much, being as though it's just so far you know away from the states. But anyway, there's a couple here that I found to be really interesting. And the first one, uh, the first one's interesting for a reason I'll get to in a minute. But it starts off with a kid named Michael Timothy Palmer. And Michael Palmer disappeared on June 4th, 1999 from Wasilla, Alaska. And the dude is like 15 years old. And he's one of three boys in a family. And that's going to be important here in a little bit as well. Just keep up with me. So in early June of 1999, Michael was busy hanging out with friends. It was, you know, summertime for kids. He was pretty young. But he decided to go to a graduation party. And the kid being 15 is probably like a freshman. So he didn't probably go to a whole lot of parties for high school. Uh, It says here in the book that his mother reported it was the first big party he went to for school. Um, He was good about checking in. He was good about keeping up. Um, His mother, Lisa, wasn't really concerned about him going to a party because she said he's always a pretty good kid. He'd call if he was going to be late or if there were any issues, he'd always keep in touch with his family. So on June 3rd, 1999, Michael accepted a ride from a friend to go to another friend's house to celebrate somebody's graduation. And it was about nine miles away from his actual house in Meadow Lakes in Alaska, whatever town that is. Um, At around 3.30 in the morning after the party was over, um, a group of the kids decided they should just ride their bikes back into town from this house. And so um, it doesn't say how many kids there were, but it was a pretty good convoy. All the kids have bikes. Uh, Michael borrows another kid's bike. And they just take off. 3.30 in the morning, bunch of 15, 16-year-old kids. Fuck, I would do it, too. It sounds like a good time to me. 
so they start taking off down this bike ride and it's like 3.8 miles away from um, this gas station. And as they're riding, Michael starts to kind of lose to the back of the pack and he's kind of trailing behind. And next thing they know, they don't really see him behind them anymore. They just realize, holy shit, he probably fell far enough behind. We should wait up for him. So they know the 7-Eleven's coming up. They pull into the parking lot and they wait in the parking lot for Michael. And he just never shows up. So they sit there for several minutes and finally they realize... Well, shit, he must have just taken a different way back. Maybe he just decided to take a different route, or maybe he passed us whenever we pulled in and we just didn't see him, and he didn't see us. So the following morning around 11 o'clock, uh, his mom, Lisa, is getting ready to go to work at the hospital. She works out, and uh, she checked his room and realized you know, he never came in. He never made any calls, and she's starting to get kind of worried because the kid was notorious for letting her know, checking in, keeping up with her, and all that. So um, finally, after a little more panic, she got a hold of her other son, Chucky, and told him, hey, look, um, you know, Michael never came home last night. I'm really getting worried. So Ch- Chuck takes charge. He calls his dad and explains that Michael's missing. The Alaska State Police troopers were called at 3 p.m., so he's been gone for about 12 hours now. And then a huge investigation, you know, just blooms from there. And the troopers get a bunch of boys together who were the ones that claimed to have seen him last. Um, They question them extensively. They even go as far as getting polygraphs because they start to think maybe these kids just ganged up and who knows what happened. Boys will be boys. Maybe they just beat the shit out of them and left them on the side of the road. Um, All the kids pass. Nothing really comes up. There's no evidence saying that there's foul play from the kids. So Michael was last seen on that road, and so they start their search in that area. They later find the bike that Michael had been riding uh, next to a creek bed. And like we said earlier, a lot of this stuff takes place near, uh, you know, bodies of water. So they find the bike by the creek bed, and they doubt that Michael's actually in the creek because it's a clear, you know, clear water, pretty gentle current. But they have divers going anyway, and they find nothing. His body's not there. But they do notice what's weird is his Converse tennis shoes are about 200 yards away from the river on the other side. Uh, They're still wet, and there's silt inside of them. So there's proof that he or somebody wore the shoes through the creek. Um They said what was strange is they were rather clean and unusual in appearance. One shoe had been tied, one shoe had been untied, and um, no other personal items were found. Um, They said it was strange that, you know, he liked his shoes so much he shouldn't have left them behind. They think that uh, even if he took them off, he should should have normally picked them up and carried them because they meant that much to him. But, uh, yeah, it's unexplainable. They said that the Alaska State Troopers interviewed about 20 kids who were at the party and other potential witnesses in the area for about two weeks. And finally, they just gave up on him. Um, His body was never found. The only thing they ever found were his shoes. So kind of weird. But what I mentioned earlier about this case being kind of interesting is uh, Michael's not the only one of the family that disappeared. And this is super bizarre. So if you weren't keeping notes, this happened on June 4th, 1999, when Michael disappeared. And if you fast forward to April 10th of 2010, his middle brother, Chucky, the one who contacted his dad and said, hey, by the way, Michael's missing. He goes out on April 9th uh, with four other family members just to kind of get away. He's got twin 10-year-old girls and a nine-year-old daughter as well. And he's just thinking, I'm going to get away for a while, go hang out with some friends and family, and just go out to the cabin, ride some snow, uh, some snowmobiles. So he and four other people head out to take on this journey and go to this cabin. And they're riding the snowmobiles. They're having a great time. And everybody's just kind of carrying on, horsing around. And then, again, kind of like Michael, Chucky was in the back of the pack. So you got four people in front of him and then him kind of falling behind. And when they're getting up to their turnoff to go towards the cabin, they all turn. 
And the, his family mentions that Chucky just kept going straight. He didn't turn off. He just kind of sped up and continued going straight towards these uh, mountains called the Bald Mountain. So they head off to the cabin. They wait for about an hour, and they start to get really nervous. And once they realize he's not coming, they call out, and they start up a search party as well. Um, this snow was getting pretty heavy right around the time that they kind of separated and went different directions. So they call into the Alaska State Troopers. They start another search party for him, and again, they can't find him. There's no proof of his trail. There's no evidence as to which way he went. It's just gone. So they found the snowmobile the next morning, I think at like 7.15. 12 miles past the cabin, they find the the snowmobile stuck in a mountain of snow, and there's no signs of Chuck. His equipment uh, is all gone. All they find is a snowmobile. So... It's weird. Again, the following Monday, they search all over the place, the fire department, the state troopers, volunteers, helicopters. You got a pretty decent team looking for this kid, and nothing was ever found past his snowmobile. That was it. Just a classic case of uh, one of the brothers falling behind, and then next thing you know, uh, they're gone. Hmm. I don't know what to think about that. I mean, it would be weird. I don't know. You guys think there's not that many people up there. Mm-hmm. If somebody killed him, they probably wouldn't take the the snowmobile because that would be easy to trace. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah, I just I find it weird that number one, his brother goes missing ten years prior. He knows the circumstances, and you know you think he'd be a little more careful. And then coincidentally, mm-hmm. another brother goes from disappearing 10 years later. It's just kind of weird. The circumstances are pretty coincidental. I don't think it has a lot to do with it. But, you know, both of them are in a group of people, their friends, their peers. Both of them fall behind to the last person in the group, and then they just kind of disappear. And they always say, like, a, you know, abduction runs in the family. So, like, you know, uh, one family member who's abducted, you know, you get multiple people in that family that are abducted. And so we we really don't know the intelligence behind the 411 phenomenon, and so some people have speculated it's alien abduction, or you know the, something along the lines of that. So it could be that uh, you know this would be a good case for you know going from one brother to the next, mm-hmm. um, and even though that they you know the circumstances are the same, that it's just following that that pattern. Yeah, it's weird. And there's not a whole lot of stories about, you know, multiple disappearances that I've read about so far. So that's what kind of set me off about this one was just really bizarre. Uh, that You know, brothers, that they both disappeared in separate instances. It'd be one thing, I think, if they disappeared together. But the fact that they, you know, 10 years apart. And they even go as far yeah. as to say, you know... Um, Going 12 miles off course was a bit bizarre, like why he just kept going straight. The snow wasn't bad enough for him just to get confused and get lost and not see them turn. They said it was almost like he was just compelled. He just blew past him, didn't look at him, didn't wave, just kept flying right past him. Um, But they said that investigators pretty much got the idea that he was in a good mental place at the time of the incident. Um, Suicide didn't really appear to be a possibility. And even if he did commit suicide, they could have found the body or the gloves or the equipment or something. And it's just frustrating for the searchers that they have no idea where he could have been. And what's interesting here, um, I think, is that the fire chief, Ken Farina, was so perplexed by the case. And he just kept saying from the very beginning, I'm pretty sure he and his brother were abducted by aliens because there's just no proof where they're at. We found their, their mode of transportation, but they're both gone. Bodies are never found. And so he says, quote, um, he's going to stick to his original alien abduction theory because he cannot come up with another explanation any better than that. And they simply just disappeared off the face of the earth. 
Huh. Except for the Converse, because Converse are too cool for aliens. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty funny uh, coincidence. Yeah, I didn't realize he was in Converse yeah, when I read yeah. that story earlier. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good old Chuck Taylors. Yeah, I, I suppose since I already, you know, broke the ice there saying there's aliens in Alaska, we can go ahead and jump into Nome if you want to. I wanted to talk about a special case in Alaska called Nome, Alaska, and everything kind of snowballed together. That's a pun we're going to go ahead and keep in there because the judges are going to allow it. Um, I heard about Nome, Alaska on a different podcast a couple of years ago and thought it was a really interesting case. And so I was going to cover it, and then I, you and I talked, and you were going to look into it. <laughs> so Nome, Alaska, well, number one, the state of Alaska is 1. 1.7 square miles, mm-hmm. making it seven times bigger than than the UK. So we're talking about a big state. Very few people want to live in Alaska. Just 650,000 spread across the vast outdoors. But out of the average of five out of every 1,000 people go missing every year. So if we actually take that down to what it would be, that's one out of 200 people go missing every year. Yeah. that's a, I mean, that's a kind of high amount to me, isn't it? Right. But you also got to remember this is remote wilderness a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Nome, Alaska, there's 650 miles of, of road up that way. Uh, just, you know, back roads and everything else. I I read that somewhere. Uh, there's 3,000 rivers, 39 mountain ranges, mm-hmm. and an estimated 3 million lakes. Uh, Alaska's the kind of place where you go lo- go missing and stay missing with a small <laughs> chance of anyone finding you. Right. Uh, so Sean kind of said something about this, and I kind of looked into it. Um, I didn't really find too much in here. Uh, it basically says Nome is a town where people would go buy alcohol and drink it. It was one of the only <laughs> wet towns in the area. Right. So this so, this whole thing started because I thought it was going to be a great story about alien uh, alien abduction. And I got super stoked, and I didn't read into it. I listened to a little bit of a podcast, and then I was like, hey, Rob, you look at that, because I've got so many of these stories of Missing 411. You look it up. And it kind of blew up in our faces in a way. <laughs> yeah, it's not really I you know there uh, Nome Alaska does have some weird coincidences. It's one right. of the uh it's near the Bering Strait, mm-hmm. so it's kind of where we may have crossed over in in the past. So and there's also tons of UFO activity in that area. Mm-hmm. So I mean it does have it does have its uh, its explanations, but we don't know if one has anything to do with the other. Right. I mean it's it's a large area. It's the only wet county in that in the, in the nearby area, so mm-hmm. it would make sense that people go there to drink, get drunk, and disappear. Right? Maybe they run into teak blings. We'll talk about later. <laughs> Maybe they or do. Before. I don't know, but uh, they didn't turn their shirts inside out. Maybe that's what they try to do when they find the clothing. Maybe they try to turn their shirts and their pants upside uh, inside out, and they put them on the ground. <laughs> That's why I, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. You know, <laughs> it sounds good but, to me. Uh, it sounds really good. Well, and another uh, reason why I got so excited to look up this phenomenon was: Did you guys watch that movie, The Fourth Kind, with Mila Jovanich? I actually did not because I heard it was terrible. It was a good movie, I thought, but like. I remember when the previews first came out for that movie, uh, Mila Jovanich walks out on you know the screen before the trailer, and she's like, yeah, I just really wanted to kind of introduce this and talk about um, this phenomenon. In the city of Nome, Alaska, um, there's been 24 cases of disappearing people between the 60s and the early 2000s, and it's linked to alien abduction. So in this movie, we've actually taken true accounts, true uh, 
hypnotic regression and fused it into the movie to show you, you know, what these people went through. And so I was so stoked for this movie because I thought, holy shit, this is crazy. Like, she's coming out on the screen, by God. They're not going to lie to us and tell us that uh, this is all real and it's fake. And so I watched that movie, and it was pretty great. It was basically about, you know, people getting abducted by aliens in Nome, Alaska. And then, unfortunately, shortly after the movie came out... um, it came out in the news that they faked all of it. Like the entire thing was just one giant bullshit story. Mm. Yeah. But then I looked into it a little bit more and found out that, yeah, people, people really are actually disappearing and there are actual UFO documented sightings in Nome, Alaska. Um, like you were saying earlier, Rob, it's located kind of on the very edge of the continent. Um, local UFO watchers feel like there's a special kind of kinship towards Nome and, uh, there's, pretty regular UFO sightings in the area throughout the year. And ufologists think that it may be a region um, that kind of commands Center for Alien and Earth Life to come together. That sounds kind of goofy. But uh, yeah, besides that, um, in the end, what I thought was kind of funny is Universal actually had to pay $20,000 to the Alaska Press Club because to make this movie seem um, as real as they did, they actually fabricated news articles, they fabricated obituaries, and they actually made um, websites and fake cases on these websites. So, mm. yeah, but um, what I'm getting at here is they had to pay some restitutions as well because the phenomenon of the people disappearing was real, whether it's aliens or alcohol or what. And so they had to pay some restitutions because the, the families of the victims felt kind of like they had a bad taste in their mouth because they were making light of their, uh, their relatives disappearing. So yeah. Tragedies. Yeah. So, um, like you were saying, basically the disappearances are real. They live kind of often secluded part of Alaska And you had the problem with dry counties and wet counties and damp counties. And a lot of the FBI, when the FBI came out and actually investigated it, thinking that it could have been a uh, group of serial killers or something, or hell, maybe it was aliens. They just wanted to come out and investigate it. And they end up finding out that it's probably just a bunch of drunk, you know, Indians. Because a lot of times the people who are missing are Indian males who, you know, maybe drink Native American. Thank you. Native American males who probably drank a little bit too much and just passed out in the snow or got lost or God knows what. And it's even worse now that we know about that they made shit up and like, well, now that's all tainted. So now we don't know if anything is real. Right. I know not every single, you know, wild goose chase ends with a, a cooked goose. Instead, our gooses were cooked. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted that to be real so bad and found out that it's pretty much as Hollywood making a bunch of shit up. So a lot of people go missing in Alaska. It's documented more than just Nome. And I, I've got another story from Missing 411 that I thought was kind of interesting because oftentimes you hear of, you know, people going missing and they send out search parties to find these people and they find them, they don't find them. But what I didn't read a lot about so far is a case of the search party actually going missing or members of the search party going missing while they're trying to find somebody who is missing. Have you guys ever come across that at all in what hmm. you've read? Not really. Yeah, so I thought that was really, I mean, kind of a rare instance so far, but um, this story is going to be about Gerald DeBerry, and um, what had happened here with Gerald was, um, again, adult male, 53 years old, and this is just a little bit northeast of Fairbanks, Alaska. So he is a volunteer himself, and he set out on October 10th of 2011 to go find a missing person, a woman from Utah named Mindy Stratz. And reportedly, Mindy was out with her family, four-wheeling, and she got separated from everybody else. Everybody else. 
<laughs> Everybody else. Um, her brother got nervous, and he went back to the Long Creek Lodge and reported to the authorities what he discovered. His sister, along with her four-wheeler, her Jack Russell Terrier, and her trailer were all missing. And I don't know if that means, like, she had all that shit with her. Like, she's got a dog in a basket on the front of the four-wheeler and a trailer on the back. Or I think what it means is that she disappeared on the four-wheeler, and when he got back, the trailer and the dog were gone, too. So, anyway, Gerald meets up with the uh, search party, and he's on a four-wheeler. And along with other searchers, they head out looking for this, you know, missing Mindy. And while they're out searching for the missing woman, um, Gerald starts to complain to the other searchers that he's getting kind of cold. He's very uncomfortable. And some of the searchers decide, hey, we should stop. We should build a fire and warm up. So they build a fire, and they kind of, you know, catch their breath. And uh, Gerald's given another overcoat to wear to kind of keep himself a little bit warmer. So once he kind of gets his head back on his shoulders, he decides, you know, let's head back out. So they all go out on their way, and he kind of goes separately uh, away from the pack. And shortly after that, Mindy's actually found alive and well near the Frozen Foot Creek, Um in perfect health. She's not lost. She probably was just, I don't know, doing her own thing. They report back. They say, Hey, we found the missing person. We're going to head on back. They pack up the camp. They get everything together. And they notice that Gerald is now missing. So longer story shorter here, they report Gerald to, uh, you know, the state troopers saying, you know what? We just lost one of our own. Holy crap. And you know, in a lot of these cases with these, um, institutions, when one of your own goes missing, it almost becomes more serious because, you know, you're supposed to be the ones who are solving the problems. You're the ones that are untouchable. And now next thing you know, one of the uh, searchers is being searched for. So they look for this guy for a week. And they've got the Alaskan Air National Guard, two helicopters with um, mounted FLIR cameras, the Alaskan uh, state troopers, among other people looking for this guy. And there's not a single damn trace of him anywhere. Hmm. So about three days later, um, after he disappeared, they made a statement publicly. And one of Gerald's friends said that um, there's no way he could have got lost because he knows this area like the back of his hand. You know, he's a trained volunteer searching for people who go missing. Um, He knows it all too well. So something terrible must have happened. Um, They have no leads. It goes about another year uh, from when he disappears to Labor Day 2012. And a local miner, um, a man was just walking near what they call Faith Creek Mines. That's near mile marker number 69, whatever that means. Um, But he discovers (laughs) your child. (laughs) And it wasn't even pressed in the left. The miner discovers Gerald's four-wheeler. It's parked on a slight incline. The engine has been turned off. And that's all they ever saw of him. After that, there's no more traces, no gear, no coats, nothing. Guy's just gone. Hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty fucked, too. But, I mean, I guess after talking to you, it doesn't sound... I mean, it's terrible. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't sound abnormal. For as big as Alaska is, I'm pretty sure it's easy to get lost, I guess. Yeah, it's... I don't... I don't know. It just seems like... Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, there's not a whole, there's not a whole lot to say. Like it's creepy, <laughs> and it, it it could just be chalked up to bad place, bad timing, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, I've I've picked one more story for us guys because I really like to finish these off with like a whole what the fuck is going on story. And the first ones I read to you guys are kind of okay, great, someone disappeared, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this coincidentally goes back to alcohol. I'm not going to find a good segue for that. So like you mentioned earlier, Preston, um, one of his newer books for the missing 411 series is a sobering coincidence. And it really kind of zeroes in on, you know, drunk 
I don't want to say drunk men because there are cases of women going missing too, but it's about a lot of, you know, drunk males, college age, disappearing after going out on a, you know, a weekend bender or something like that. So mm-hmm. this one's long kind of stay with me because it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit creepy. So the story's about Jeffrey Giese. He's 20 years old, and he goes missing on April 11th of 1999. And he is from La Crosse, Wisconsin. And there's a lot of stories about La Crosse, Wisconsin in this book, and I didn't have time to finish them, or else we could have done a whole segment just on hmm. La Crosse, Wisconsin. But uh, So Jeffrey is this college kid. He's your average-built, athletic, strong, healthy, young, strapping man. And he's attending the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse, and he's studying to be a mechanical engineer. And one more thing we kind of left out earlier was a lot of times the people that go missing are pretty intelligent. They're studying to be engineers or they're doctors or something else like that. On April 10th, he started his evening off by going down to the student center and having some food at Taco Bell. And there are reports and proof that he was there because he held a conversation for a little while with one of the managers that was working uh, on duty. After that, he then goes to a house party for a little while and then finally meets up with a female friend and her father at a pizza parlor and has pizza and drinks with the girl and her dad. At 1030 that night, they said their goodbyes and then Jeffrey went down to the Bodega Brew Pub where he stayed till about midnight. After that, this guy leaves there and goes to Club Millennium and splits a pitcher of beer with uh, some of his buddies. They say that after he left there about 1 a.m., coincidentally, it started raining very heavily. At this point, he either went to one of two places, the Liberty Bar or to visit somebody in an apartment above the Bayou Bar. But they couldn't really determine which place he went, but they said that was the last time he was ever seen. What's odd about this, after he's reported uh, missing, searchers waited for 16 days to bring in canines to search for his whereabouts or to get any kind of clues. Um, They take a dog up to his room in his dorm. And the dog takes a keen interest to his backpack, the windowsill in his room, and the top bed of his bunk bed. So basically the top bunk. Um, After that, they left. They took the dog to the library bar, and it picked up a scent there, even though it was 16 days after the heavy foot traffic. And, I mean, we're not experts, but we all kind of know. If you've got dogs sniffing out, you know, scents, you should probably take care of that within the first 24 to 48 hours, not 16 days later in these high traffic areas. Because if you've got bars and restaurants, man, like you've got hundreds of people going through these places. So it's really easy to me for these scents to kind of go away and the dog just to get, you know, off his path. Um, But he picks up a scent there at the library bar, um, even through all the kids. And he didn't find anything when he went to the Millennium Bar, which is strange because he was definitely at the Millennium, but they weren't too sure if he either went to the library bar or the other bar. I don't know why, I didn't really say, but eventually they follow the lead and they put the dog on a boat. And they take this boat about four miles upstream up the Mississippi River, and the dog jumps off the boat onto land and sits down on the ground. So that usually means it's either A, found the scent, or B, it's lost the scent, right? On May 24th at 8.15 a.m., his body is then found at an inlet of the Mississippi River. No trauma is found on the body. His body is fully clothed, except for the fact that he's missing one shoe. But keep in mind, this is about four miles south of the Riverside Park in La Crosse, where he was seen in that area um, that he disappeared from. Many people believe that he probably got drunk, fell into the river, and floated through the La Crosse Riverside Park and ended up four miles away in the gravel pits at the inlet of the Mississippi. It says that things get a little bit stranger, though, guys, because when they do the autopsy on this kid, his blood alcohol level is 0.42. 
Ooh. Yeah, and those of you keeping points, uh, that means you're probably going to die if you're not already dead. That's a pretty lethal level. But to make things stranger, the dude had 130 micrograms of GHB in his system as well. Mm. And for those of you who don't know, GHB is also liquid ecstasy on the streets, or what we often refer to as the date rape drug. This guy potentially could have gone on a bender, got completely faded, and then just somebody drugged him. Bob's your uncle, fell in the river, and there you go. That's a pretty easy way to explain this. In this story, um, Politis mentions there's two authors that take a kind of a keen liking to this because they also, uh, they're also researching missing you know, 411 type things and bodies of water and, and drunk people, stuff like that. So the investigators state that due to the currents in the river, there's no way possible that he fell in at Riverside Park and floated all the way to the Mississippi, uh, all the way through the Mississippi River for four miles because the currents were too strong and they're going in the opposite direction. So there goes that explanation that there's no way he could have done that. So somebody else suggests that, okay, Maybe he just walked. It's not uncommon for you to get completely shit-faced and then just go for a stroll because you're that drunk. But they also want to follow that up and say, yeah, but he had 0.42% blood uh, alcohol content level. There's no way. The guy was probably comatose. Plus, if this guy's got 130 micrograms of date rape drug in him, he's probably not going to stumble, let alone move. We fast forward to this guy's autopsy report. There's no mention of lividity in the body. Uh, Do you guys know what lividity is? I didn't. That's where the blood, uh, where the blood settles in the body. Yeah, there we go. It's where the blood settles in the body in pools, you know, kind of in the lower areas. So like extremities or just kind of pools on your back or your butt or whatever. There's no lividity in this kid's body, which they say is really, really strange. Because keep in mind, he's been gone for like 42, 43 days. So we're assuming the guy's been dead for better part of, the better part of 40 days. Unless the body's in current motion, lividity should be present. So maybe he fell into the river and he just churned for like 40 straight days, and that's why the the blood never could settle. But that didn't happen. Or otherwise, they mentioned maybe he was put into a washing machine on a spin cycle and just kept rotating. Probably not going to happen either. What about the zero-G gravity or being in a vacuum? See, that's kind of interesting, right? And you would think that. Let's just jump on the crazy train. Maybe he got abducted by aliens, and that's why the uh, lividity is not present, right? Could be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could be. I'm going to blow that theory out of the water, too, and just keep up with me here. <laughs> the autopsy doesn't mention that the body was in rigor mortis state, but the photos produced from the scene of the crime show the body was very much rigid when being uh, recovered and taken out of the river. So this means that he couldn't have been dead for that whole 43 days, right? Because rigor mortis sets in for a certain period. So specialists then conclude that Jeffrey could have been dead for a maximum of 72 hours before his body had been discovered. So what does that mean? Back that shit up real quick. The dude's missing for 42 days. But the autopsy report says his body couldn't have been dead for more than 72 hours. Mm. So shit just keeps getting kind of weird. He was on the world's longest bender. I guess so. So some people believe that maybe he could have been kidnapped or taken captive on the 11th of April, but then he may have only been killed one to three days before they dumped his body in the water just to cover up uh, whatever happened by drowning. And the water in his lungs do show that he did drown because <laughs> there's water in his lungs. But what it also tells them is he was unconscious when he hit the water. The way the, the water had settled in his lungs, it was not the way you typically see somebody drown who was awake or fighting, you know, to try to stay awake. 
Um, further studies show that there was some hair loss apparent on his body, and the body had begun to turn green in certain areas, meaning that his time of death places is probably 72 to 96 hours prior to the body being discovered. Again, saying he'd only been dead for maybe, maybe three or four days before they found their body. But shit's going to get a bit weirder, guys, okay? The coroner also includes that, bizarrely enough, the body didn't have any traces of blood present either. As well as, Preston, you're going to guess what I'm going to say next. All the vitreous fluid had been removed from his eyeballs. What? Yeah, because that's, uh, the, that was speculated in some other cases mm-hmm. that the reason why that's missing... Mm-hmm is when you do a toxicology report, all of your chemicals, like whether you're like poisoned or if you have a drug mm-hmm. overdose, 90% of those chemicals will actually get caught within that jelly behind right. your eyeball. And that jelly has been reported in the back of the eyeball being removed. So they can't have a coherent uh, toxicology report on some of these cases. So whatever they can find in the blood, um, that's kind of what they go by. But um, they can't get a solid toxicology report on some of these cases because that jelly has been, you know, sucked out. So, yeah, the guy's body had been drained of all the blood and the vitreous fluid in his eyeballs had been removed. That just makes things weirder because the coroner says that there's no evidence of how or where they removed the fluids from. He's got no pinpricks. He's got no needle marks. He's got no cuts, no incisions, no nothing. He's just an empty skin sack, basically. Um, The blood had to have been removed by somebody who has such precision. They don't leave any noticeable traceable puncture marks or wounds, but that's not possible. Politis says he's contacted many doctors, many uh, funeral home directors, morticians. Nobody has that steady of a hand or the ability to remove these things without having any kind of just, you know, obvious um, incisions or entry wounds. So since they didn't have any blood in his body, that explains why he didn't have the postmortem lividity. Hmm. So maybe not zero gravity, or maybe it was. It's some goddamn space vampires again. <laughs> right. So what I thought was interesting is I asked myself one question, and I'm surprised you guys didn't ask the same one. How do you get somebody's blood alcohol level if there's no blood in their body? Uh, Something with their liver. From their brain. No, it's urine. You can test their urine. Um, but from what I understand, and again, I'm not a doctor, I think it has to be done, you know, fairly soon. I don't think you can leave it in there forever. Maybe you can. I don't know. Backing it up, the dude was gone for 42 days. He was found um, eventually, 42 days after disappearing, in a body of water. And experts are saying that the body was drained of all the blood and all the vitreous fluid. And he had a blood alcohol content of 0.42. So the main scenario that they're using right now for lack of better, is somebody must have taken him captive but kept him alive during that time, maybe for, you know, the better part of the 39 days, then administered him the high levels of alcohol and caused him also to ingest the GHB, then dumped him into the river and left him to be discovered. So whatever had been done to him, whoever took him um, just to cover it up, must have dumped the alcohol into his, you know, into his gullet, forced him to drink it, injected him or caused him to ingest the ecstasy as well and then just dumped his ass off because obviously whatever happened to this guy they've thrown up a bunch of you know misleading evidence we don't know what the hell happened so i mean job well done Mm -hmm. i suppose it's kind of creepy but um on top of the potential kidnapping they also had to be able to remove all the blood the eyeball goop with no evidence and again um 
nobody has the possible, you know, that kind of skill set. The other thing they mentioned too is that they could have drowned him first and then removed their blood, but Politus follows that up saying that's not even possible. So I don't know. I found that case to be super freaking creepy. And if you're in if you're in water for 42 days, your skin's going to deglove, meaning you're going to start losing, you know, the outer one or two layers of your skin. Right. Um and just start to dissolve. It's like uh, when you're like when you're uh, taking a bath and you're in there too long and your fingers get all uh, wrinkly like a raisin, like you're going to look gross and bloated and ugh. Yeah, so I don't know. That was that was the strangest case I could find today. I haven't really delved too much into sobering coincidence yet, but that one, I'm glad I found it because I was just sitting there thinking, thinking what the hell's going on the farther I got into this story. So <laughs> kind of got some elements of cattle mutilation put in there, I suppose. But Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've got a cool story, and it's a follow-up to uh, our What Do Horses Dream Of episode. I told you guys about the the, the caller, the listener that had the story about the, the teak belaying. And we talked about the teak belaying, and that's the horse creature um, that kind of hides out in the woods. So the teak belaying, uh, the majority of the stories I read about him was it was a Filipino uh, folklore. And again, just to freshen everybody's memory, this creature primarily kind of hides in the mountains, in the woods, and it's almost like a troll, like a bridge troll. It plays tricks on you. It leads you astray. It causes you to get confused and get lost. And uh, I reached out to a friend of mine who's from the Philippines. She was born and raised there for uh, quite a while. She lives here in the States now. And this woman, she's somebody I hold in a, I mean, high regards. She's a no-nonsense kind of lady. She doesn't really take a lot of guff from people. She's really sweet. She has no reason to pull my chain or just to, to, to mess with me at all. So <laughs> I got the courage to ask her. I called her up uh, a couple days ago, and I'm talking to her. And I'm just going to call her Elsie to keep her uh, name you know, anonymous because I don't think she wants me to tell her name. But I called her up, and we got to chatting. And before we hung up, I said, well, hey, I got a, I got a weird question for you, Elsie, and it's really strange. And I said, you know, when you grew up in the Philippines, did you ever hear a tale of the Tikbalang? And she kind of sat there and said, no, I've, I've never heard of that. What exactly is that? And I was like, okay, God, now I'm embarrassed. And I was like, well, okay, it's it's a, <laughs> it's this really tall, uh, creepy horse man that lives in the woods and tries to lead people astray. Um, it tries to get them confused and lost, and sometimes it'll drag them out in the woods and tickle them. Sometimes it'll eat them and blah, blah, blah. The phone goes quiet, and I was like, man, damn it. You know, this friendship means a lot to me with this, with, with Elsie. And I just, I, I get to look like a fool. And finally she's like, you know, Sean, um, I don't know if you're going to believe me, but she's like, it doesn't really matter if you do or not, because I know what happened. She's like, no, I've never seen a horseman. I never grew up hearing stories of a horseman that lived in the woods or anything like that. But she's like, I'll tell you something that did happen to me. And she says, I swear that this happened. So she said she's out by her house, um, out in the, in the woods, just off the, off their property. And it's her mother and herself and her brother. And she and her brother are probably, I think she said somewhere between like eight and 10 years old, the two of them. And they're walking through the woods, woods that they're very familiar with. They crossed them tens, twenties of times, you know, and they're on the way home. And all of a sudden, all three of them start to kind of notice, like we're passing the same tree over and over. And they all start to realize maybe we're a little bit more lost. Maybe we went the wrong direction. And she said, all of a sudden, all three of them get lightheaded. Um, everything gets kind of fuzzy. And they feel like the, the forest is starting to kind of swirl and sway back and forth. And they're all getting really confused. And she's like, 
And it's hard to explain this. Everything just looks so like, so just kind of cloudy and smudged. And I was like, kind of foggy, like a mind fog. And she's like, yeah. And she says, we're starting to get worried. And finally my mom stops and she turns around and she yells at us, turn your shirts inside out, take your shirts off and turn them inside out. And if you guys remember, that's what I told you uh, about the teak belang. If you're a traveler and you start to get lost or weary, you turn your shirt inside out and it basically counteracts the spell that this creature puts on you. And then you find your way. So she said her and her brother took their shirts off, turned them inside out, put them back on. And she said no sooner than they didn't, uh, no sooner than they did that, all of a sudden the forest stopped spinning and the, the mind fog went away and they got their bearings and they just, a couple minutes later, they were home. Oh, my God. So she knew nothing about this part of the story. about. She never knew specifically about that creature, and she'd never been warned really before that much. And so I was like, well, that's that's really interesting, Elsie. Thanks. I mean, that's that's part of the folklore. And she's like, well, hang on. I'm not done. And I said, okay. And she said, so she's like, a couple years ago, um, I was talking to my sister. I was visiting. Either she was visiting her sister, her sister was visiting here or whatever. Um, And she's like, hey, sis, let me ask you something kind of silly. And so she told her the story. And her sister looks at her for a second and she's like, um, you know, I don't really talk about this a lot, but she said, same thing. Back when uh, she lived at home or wherever she lived, I don't remember if it was the same house or her own house. Um, they had a lot of men that would work the rice patties and just do farming all day long. And so it was pretty customary back then to pack food and water and take it out to the guys working the fields and just make lunch for them, feed them, make them feel good, and then go back. But to get to the fields, she had to go through the woods. And she's like, Elsie, one day I just dropped off the food with the guys out in the fields, and and I was on my way home, and I'm going back through the woods. And she said, all of a sudden... I felt like I was crossing paths with the same tree over and over and I'm just walking in circles. And she's like, I know these woods like the back of my hand, but all of a sudden I can't tell where the heck I'm at. And she's like, it starts getting kind of fuzzy out and I'm kind of losing my bearings. And I feel like, you know, my head's kind of spinning. And she said, all of a sudden I remember mom always telling us when we were little, if you ever get lost in the woods, take your shirt off, turn it inside out and put it back on and you'll be fine. But never forget, if you get lost, turn your shirt inside out. So she said she walked around for a while. She was lost for probably five, 10 minutes. And finally she took her shirt off, uh, inside out, put it back on. And she said she was like 20 feet from the edge of the forest and she found her way home. Wow. Yeah. And it's so bizarre. So, I mean, teak belang or not, that's one thing. But the fact that Two girls from the same family had the same phenomenon happen to them out in the woods. Right. And so I, f- I found that to be really, really interesting. It was just a voice. So they bas- she basically just heard a voice telling her to... Uh, no, you idiot. No, she remembered her mom telling her that. <laughs> no, she remembered her mom telling okay. her. <laughs> That's the difference, folks. We like the stories. Preston just prays that it's something <laughs> like a boogeyman. Well, and honestly, though, the weird things about like turning the shirt inside out makes me think of Faylor and stuff like yeah. that instead of yep. instead of something you know physical, like something like a fairy or some sort. So that's that's odd. Yeah, it's weird. And I, I was talking to her about it because I don't think she really subscribes to a lot of these ideas that we do. And I could tell she was a little bit embarrassed. And I was like, well, you know what's really interesting about this, Elsie, is that, you know, maybe it was something in the woods and it was luring you guys away. And by turning your shirts inside out, you broke the spell and you were able to escape. And she kind of giggles and she's like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. And I'm like, but you know what's interesting about the idea of if you ever get lost, take your shirt off, turn it inside out. If you're getting lost and you're getting confused and frustrated, maybe just a simple act of taking your shirt off. And concentrating on that one simple act, taking my shirt off, turning it inside out, putting it back on, 
maybe that's enough just to kind of break your concentration long enough to clear your bearings. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, yeah, here I am. Here's the fig tree. Take a left. And then you find your way home. But I mean, it was, it was really interesting just to hear that, you know, we talk about something like that here in the States. And then I find somebody who's got experience with it. It was kind of cool to hear, like I say, horse, horse imp or not, it was kind of cool just to, to catch up with that. So, well, there you go, guys. Super, super extended cut. You guys got a bonus size episode this time around. So you got it supersized. McDonald's style. Uh, anybody watching anything good these days? Uh, I'm trying to finish Hemlock Grove. So no. Yeah, that's your own fault. <laughs> that's your own fault, man. I uh, I started watching and finished American Gods. It's kind of uh, Brian Fuller's follow up to Hannibal, and it's a visceral ride for the senses. It's fantastic. In other news, I'm heading back to the old sensory deprivation float tank on Thursday. Awesome, man. You have to let us know yeah. how that goes. I'm pretty excited, man. I'm pretty excited. Shayla checked it out today, and she didn't really have anything happen, which can be true. They say, worst case scenario, you're just going to go float in a, you know, a tank full of water and just relax for an hour and a half. So, How many uh, how many times have you done um, it? This will be my second time. I've only done it once before this. So. Cool. I've done it three times total. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ready to go yeah, back. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. I'm really excited about it, so. Go check that out, and I will report back next time on that. So, Well, let's plug some stuff and get out of here. I think it's been long enough. So, as always, check out O&D Podcast from our uh, brothers from another mother, Brady and Big Steven, uh, where they talk about video games and all sorts of shit. So, I give it uh, five boinkins on a five boinkin scale. Uh, then there's Pixelated Radio Podcast with me, Mark, Corey, and Rich, where we talk about video games and video game stuff. And also, don't forget Rich's podcast, Sports Car Unleashed, where he talks about sports cars and he unleashes them on the planet. Hey, yeah, and a shout out to Adam H. Um, he dropped us an article on, I think, the states with the most UFO sightings. And I haven't cracked that puppy open yet. Um, but I will. We'll jump on that next episode, too. I'll touch on that. So thank you, Adam, for that. Uh, hats off to you, sir. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will catch you next time around. Catch you on the flip side. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. You have two ways. One, email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we have that set up too. Dial us at 707-523-4263. Again, that's 707-523-4263. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. A lot of males are discovered with their flies down. Ooh. Ghost blowjobs. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot blowjobs. That's a little kinky. Do, do, do.
Absolutely riveting.